0: In the course of this winter, January and February, Monday nights, we've been going back to one of the most central and fundamental teachings in the Buddhist tradition, which is the Eightfold Path of Practice, offered by the Buddha as an outline and a series of practices or ways of living that lead to happiness and that lead to awakening and that lead to uh, enlightenment and uh, freedom of the heart and mind we began some mondays ago some weeks ago speaking about right understanding or wise understanding the potential that we each sense for greater compassion for greater presence for greater freedom and then wise attitude Uh, which is that of openness, of discovery, of really learning from the situations of our life what entangles us in suffering and what leads us to freedom by paying attention. And then the ground of practice, uh, the necessary ground of compassion. We talked about what's called right speech or wise speech, wise action, which in some ways quite simply are the actions Um, that don't harm other beings, the actions of compassion. Because it's very hard to have any kind of spiritual path if it's not founded on a fundamental integrity and compassion. As I said a couple of weeks ago, it's pretty hard to meditate as well after a day of killing and stealing and lying. It doesn't work terribly well to put those together. So this evening, the next step of the Eightfold Path... Is called right livelihood or wise livelihood and it's one of the factors of enlightenment one of the qualities of an awakened life that the Buddha put in his very first teachings what does it mean this wise livelihood how are we to understand it it said in the Buddhist texts when the noble disciple and the noble disciple means you, (laughs) the sons and daughters of the Buddhas who may have forgotten their heritage, but when they remember, when we remember our, O nobly born, who we are, practices, they avoid wrong livelihood and cultivate right livelihood. And what is wrong livelihood or unwise livelihood? It is livelihood that causes harm through deceit, treachery, trickery that is involved in killing or stealing, that harms in any way the traffics in weapons, the traffics in exploitation of others, human beings. And instead, what wise livelihood is, or right livelihood, is those qualities, says the Buddha, where one makes effort to dwell attentively and compassionately with the circumstances of this world and to contribute in a wholesome way or in a wise way to oneself and to one's community. In a different text, the Buddha is asked to list the blessings of a human life, and he starts with some very simple ones to associate with good friends and not those who are foolish. To reside in a suitable location. To have acted in the past in ways that are beneficial or good for oneself and others. To be well-spoken. To be trained and well-educated. To be skilled in a craft. To be highly disciplined. These are blessings. To care for one's family, one's community. To engage in a blameless occupation. These are the blessings of human life. And then he goes on to talk about the other blessings of compassion and loving kindness and awareness and liberation. So those are some of the teachings about right livelihood or wise livelihood. And what does it mean in a more immediate sense? One of the things that I love about going to India is that when you take a taxi in India, those little Indian taxis, Um, Almost all the time, not only do you get into a taxi, but the taxi is also a little bit of a temple because there's an altar and there's a picture of Krishna or Shiva or Saraswati or Kali or Durga or, or one of many other forms of God. And there'll be a little bit of incense and a mala and some flowers that are left there. And there's some way in which the taxi is a conveyance to take you from one place to another, but there's another way in which also it carries the prayers of that person who is driving it, which, of course, in India you also need just to get from one place to another given the way that people drive and the crowds, even worse than our Bay Area streets. Um, But there's a quality in that, that yes, this is the work and this is the livelihood, but within the livelihood, within what we do, there is also this dimension of what is sacred or holy. So a story. In an Indian village lived a weaver who was very pious. All day long he would chant the name of God, and people trusted him implicitly. And when he had woven cloth, he would take it to the marketplace to be sold, and if anyone asked the price, he would say, By the will of Ram, Ram was his mantra, Rama was his way of praising God. The price of the yarn is 35 cents, the labor 10 cents, the profit by the will of God 4 cents. So the price of this piece by the will of Ram 49 cents and people had such faith in him they never questioned. Now he was in the habit of going to the village temple at night to sing and chant praises and glories of Rama and one night while he was chanting a band of robbers burst in they needed someone to carry their stolen goods for him, for them, so they said, Come with us, and they demanded that he do so, so he had to accompany them with the goods in his arms. Soon after, the police gave chase, and the robbers began to run. The weaver ran with them, but since he was an older man, the police soon caught up with him, and finding him carrying stolen goods, they arrested him and threw him in jail. Following morning, he was sent before the judge, accused of burglary. When the judge asked him what he had to say for himself, this is how he replied. Your Honor, by the will of Ram I finished my meal last night, and by the will of Ram I went to the temple there to chant his praises. That is when suddenly, by the will of Ram, a band of robbers burst in, and again by Rama's will they entreated me to carry their goods for them. They put such a pressure on me that by the will of Ram the police gave chase, and I was easily caught. And then, by the will of Ram, I was arrested and thrown in jail. And here I am, standing before you this morning, all by the will of Ram. The judge said to the policeman, Let the man go, he's evidently out of his mind. (laughs) Back home, when he asked what happened, the pious fellow said, By the will of Ram, I was arrested and tried in court. And by the will of Ram, I have been acquitted. (laughs) Often for this particular talk, I will read a different story which comes out of this storybook um, that Christina Feldman and I did some time ago. And it's the story of a taxi driver in Boston. I feel very close to that as a profession since I drove a taxi in Boston. I drove for checker for a while when I was in graduate school. And I learned a few things. Um, I also developed some what my teenage daughter would call, um, Dad, you have some really bad driving habits. (laughs) Because in Boston, red lights are just a suggestion, right? (laughs) And mostly you park by sound there, see if you make an impact. But anyway, um, so this story was written, um, and it's a fellow who gets in the taxi um, and gets caught, as we do all the time now in the Bay Area, in this huge traffic jam you know and then the taxi driver says look at them all they're getting apoplectic they're having heart attacks they're having strokes and all because they want to be somewhere else and they don't ha- know how to be where they are and the person in the back seat says will you you know you don't you don't get in a hurry he said no no i'm doing what i like i like what i do and I always am working just where I'm supposed to be, which is where I am. I like it right here. And this conversation goes on for a long time. And finally, after a long time, they get to the destination, and the guy's getting out of the car, and the taxi driver says, I don't know who you are, sir, but I hope you like being where you are, and I hope you like what you do, because it's the only thing that makes life worthwhile. And the man reflects. He said, here I am, the governor of the state of Massachusetts, who wrote this story, going to a meeting that I don't want to go to, spending time with people that I don't want, and I look enviously on this taxi driver who's smiling and driving away. (laughs) (laughs) So what is wise livelihood? In one dimension, the aspect of compassion or integrity, as we said, or as the Buddha said, is to make a livelihood in such a way that doesn't harm other beings, not to deal in drugs or weapons or exploitation. The Buddha goes on to find work that is honest, sincere, legal, used to awaken oneself and others. Now, it's pretty confusing in these times, not to deal in drugs or weapons and so forth, because the U.S., our country, is such a major exporter we are the largest exporter of weapons on the face of the earth. And we, people don't talk about it, but we make a lot of our national income by selling weapons to all these other countries. I I say this often in here. It astounds me that no one has a conversation about it. Um, And then we wonder why the world isn't safe or why there isn't enough to eat when a trillion dollars a year or something is spent on weapons. Um, Vaclav Havel, after he... Got out of prison in Czechoslovakia, the poet and activist, and was made president of the Czech Republic, like Nelson Mandela in South Africa. Um, one of the the first decree that he made is that Czechoslovakia will no longer export arms. It had an arms industry, um, and that caused a rupture and a separation of the countries because Slovakia had a big part of the weapons factories and they withdrew and there are now two countries the Czech Republic and Slovakia but he said I will not be the president of a country that makes its living by creating weapons and selling them to others we live in a society where livelihood isn't questioned in that way where growth isn't questioned you know we just have to have more and do more and our gross national product becomes the gross thing rather than how we live and then there is the kinds of exploitation of environment of human beings of community when work gets to be production oriented and not people as it said the tribe is lost when every day the sun rises and nobody sings you know and there's not a lot of singing going on and wow. when you go out on 101 in the morning on the way to work maybe but i don't see a lot of it when work, when when that becomes an orientation and livelihood is made into, again, a kind of a grim duty or based on greed or power and and so forth. Another story for you. A 14-year-old boy announced at dinner one evening he'd been chosen to teach his class the next day. His father, who was an expert in instruction methods, For the business community sees this occasion to give his son the benefit of his experience. This is the way we go about telling our contractors, son, he said. First we choose objectives made up of action, situation, and level of performance. Now you decide ahead of time what action you want your students to perform, in what situation you want them to perform it, and how well you wish them to perform. And remember, all education must be directed at performance, 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 the bottom line. The boy wasn't impressed. All he said was, it won't work, Dad. (laughs) Of course it will. It always works. Why wouldn't it work? Because, said the young fellow, I'm supposed to give a class on sex. So how do we find... Satisfaction, awareness, awakening through our work. It's not money alone, clearly. I mean, you know, when you look at the dollar bill, and there are all those beautiful mystical symbols on it, that I, you know, and so forth. And then it says, in God we trust. Um, Which, you remember when that was put on there, when we went off the gold standard, right? And said, okay, we're not going to change it for gold anymore, in God we trust. But we know that it's not money alone. How do we find satisfaction? The first important thing is to know what is really important, what is enough. J.P. Morgan said at one point, there's a certain Buddhistic calm that comes from having money in the bank. (laughs) But how much money is enough money? (laughs) A quarter of a million? A half million? A million? You know? Um, I... uh, I got an alumni questionnaire from Dartmouth College, where I went to school, um, and which was at best a mixed experience for me. Um, and they wanted to know, you know, what you do. It's for their newsletter, and what your, how big your family is, and what your company does, and you know, what uh, honors you've had, and what you've published, and. Particularly, they were interested in your p- pattern of giving. Do you support charitable foundations? And might you support the, the the college or the university? And then at the end, they write, "What range most nearly represents the net worth of your household? Zero to half million, half million to three million, three to five million, five to ten, ten to twenty-five, twenty-five to fifty, fifty to a hundred million, a hundred million plus." I looked at that and I was stunned. (laughs) Apparently, I went to the wrong... I did it wrong at that school, I don't know. went to the wrong classes or something. Probably went to the right classes, actually. Here. You don't have to have a high-pressure job to feel stress and anxiety. Most people from all walks of life have to cope with stress. A Lou Harris poll found that nearly nine out of ten Americans experience high levels of stress, especially in regard to work. A report from Indiana University says that one-quarter of Americans have felt they were on the verge of a nervous breakdown. No wonder among the top-selling drugs in the United States are so many for depression and anxiety. So how much is enough? How much work? How much money? 50 hours a week? 60? 80 hours a week? The first noble truth of the Buddha is the truth of suffering, unsatisfactoriness, insecurity, struggle. And if we follow greed and endless desire and the need for protection over and over again, what we discover is there's never enough. It doesn't work that way. As uh, Helen Keller puts it, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of humans on the whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. So the first noble truth just acknowledges that there's conflict and suffering. And then the second noble truth is its cause, which is craving, grasping, dissatisfaction with what we have, and the constant seeking of more, the holding on, the trying to control things that we cannot control, the looking for security where it can't be found. And it's certainly so in mistaken ways in livelihood. Plato puts it this way, poverty is not the absence of goods, but rather the overabundance of desire. And I know that he's not speaking about the poverty of people born in the situations of injustice and, you know, the poverty prisons that we've created in this country, but the poverty of the heart. Or this quote from Oriana Fallaci, you wear yourself out in the pursuit of wealth or love or freedom. You do everything to gain something. And once it's gained, you take no pleasure in it because you're trying to gain the next thing. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers, as Wordsworth. And it can be, as they say in India, a golden chain. You know, it's not a chain of iron. It might be the most elegant circumstances that we have and still are unsatisfied with and want more. Rabindranath Tagore, who writes, The child who is decked with prince's robes and has jeweled chains round his neck loses all pleasure in his play. His dress hampers him at every step. In fear it may be frayed or stained. With dust he keeps himself from the world and is afraid to move. It is no gain if the bondage of our finery keeps us shut off from the healthful dust of the earth, if it robs us of the right of entrance to the great fair of common human life and the heart we find therein. And you know, I've noticed kids who have everything and they say, I'm bored. What do you want? I have everything. I'm bored. I also remember being in villages, in Indonesia, in Latin America, in places where kids played with a tin can as a wheel attached to a stick, you know, or with uh, water buffaloes, or with uh, marbles, fantastic to have marbles for hours, and there was as much creativity and love and joy in that one set of marbles for a year than in all the playstations and video games and junk that you could imagine. Now because this has been an election year, you remember that, (laughs) it's worthwhile to talk a little bit about some of the underpinnings of our economic civilization, what we assume makes happiness. Since the 1600s in Europe, during that period that was called the Enlightenment, where science was separated from mysticism and religion, and now we have everything quite rational with Thomas Hobbes and John Locke and so forth, there grew the idea of a social contract, which says that we are innately separate beings, out for ourselves, driven by desire for power and goods. And therefore, it's posited that certain rules for governments and laws need to be set up so we don't take undue advantage of one another in our pursuit of self-aggrandizement. That's kind of the philosophical underpinnings of capitalism in a certain way. It's true. Here's Sigmund Freud's commentary on it. Culture has to call up every possible reinforcement in order to erect barriers against the aggressive instincts of men. I'll leave it in that gender for the moment. Its ideal command to love one's neighbor as oneself is really justified by the fact that nothing is so completely at variance with original human nature as this. Thank you, Sigmund. So he has, he has a relatively dark view of our nature, to say the least. And yet, the truth is that that, what you might call... An amoral view of our human life, um, forgets the necessity of care and virtue for us simply to live together in community. And James Madison wrote about this when he said, no amount of checks and balances, no form of government can render us secure. To suppose that any form of government will secure liberty or happiness without virtue in the people, without good hearts in the people, is a chimerical idea. It simply can't happen. It doesn't come from the government, it comes from the hearts of humans. Or from another economic um, analyst, Thomas McCauley, Who writes about how the ends of empire happens, you know, when the barbarians are coming, the vandals and the goths, and continues, only this time the barbarians are not at the gates. The barbarians have been running the country for some years now. So what does this have to do with wise livelihood? To follow the way of the Dharma, to follow the way of the heart of the spiritual teachings of life, often means to swim upstream, to go against the current of the forces around us. Because happiness in the Dharma, Dharma is a Sanskrit word which means truth or the law, the Tao, the way things are. Happiness in the Dharma comes not by possession, and not by accumulation, and not by oneself alone. doesn't mean you can't have things. But if that is the meaning of your life, you won't be happy. Possession, accumulation, self alone. Happiness comes by interconnectedness, by generosity and respect and the honoring of all life. So that when you begin a meal in the Zen community, you start with a chant, 99 labors made this food. The labors of the sun and the rain and the earthworms and the bugs of the soil and the farmers and the laborers who handpicked that food and the laborers who drove the trucks to the market or as it says in the Tao the wheat relies on the rain a sail relies on the wind and I a merchant rely on the customers we rely on one another and the truth is that we're not independent, we are interdependent. Otherwise, there is tremendous suffering. From Alexis de Tocqueville, it is possible to have outer liberty and still be enslaved. He wrote this 160 years ago or something like that. The time may come when men are carried away by the pursuit of wealth to such an extent that they lose all (laughs) self-restraint. And in their exclusive anxiety to make a fortune, they will neglect their chief business, which is to remain their own masters, the masters of their spirit or their heart. Interconnectedness speaks to moderation, being true to ourselves, nourishing our own heart and family and community in a wise way, to know what is enough. Wisdom, said the Buddha, is to be responsible, to be free from debt, to be content within your means, to be free from anxiety, to be free from covetousness and greed or the need to impress others. And the Buddha goes on. In livelihood, you should do four things with the wealth that you create. One portion should be used for the support of yourself and your family. A second portion should be put back into your business or your work that it might grow. A third portion should be saved for the future. And a fourth should be should be shared with the community in a generous way for those who need around you. It's so important if we really want to live a wakeful life we spend so much of our time quote working to begin to really pay attention to it. Aldous Huxley put it this way he said, an idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted for eternity. Future time in the idea of progress and gain is like the devil's work demanding human sacrifice on an enormous scale. The idol, the idolatrous religion is one in which time and gain is substituted for eternity. So wise livelihood or right livelihood in the positive sense means living in the eternal present, being where we are like that taxi driver. Do not pursue the past, says the Buddha. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has yet to come. Looking deeply at life as it is here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability, in ease, and in freedom. Not enslaved by a single thing, it is possible to put aside fear and craving. The result is a life of peace and joy." And this is, although it sounds somewhat philosophical, if you will, or maybe poetical, it's really instructions for wise living from the Buddha. Whether you are an office worker, Whether you have your own business. And I read this beautiful article in the San Francisco Chronicle last winter about a bus driver who would welcome people on the bus, especially when it was raining a lot, you know, and where are you going? And he was really friendly to people and he would help the people who came on and help the people. And he became really popular on his bus route. People would want to wait for his bus. (laughs) you know, because the day was difficult and here was the bus driver that remembered them, asked them how they were doing and really wanted to know the answer. Zen Master San Sanim, Korean Roshi, friend of mine and um, the founder of a very large um, community of temples all around the world, when he first came to the West as a young, youngish Zen Master, didn't speak very good English, didn't have any students, decided I come to America, I come to teach. Very, not much English only a few words but he didn't you know have any students and he needed money what to do he said so I get a job I work in a laundromat He said this good this good meditation you know putting clothes in taking them out after the ecstasy the laundry this is an ad actually <laughs> right? <laughs> fixing the machines when they break he did it in Providence, Rhode Island, right near Brown University. So here he is in his Zen robes in there, working in the laundromat, cleaning the floor, and so forth. Students are coming in. He tried to talk to them. They say, what are you? He said, ah, I Zen. I Zen. Sit. Sitting. Sitting. Zen. You know, very, very little language. And gradually, the students became interested, though. They would go down the laundromat, wash their clothes, and he'd say, ah, you come sit. Ah." Clothes, washing, you sit. Ah, We sit together, right? They would sit for a little while, right? And slowly, slowly, a community collected around him, you know, and they were having, the laundromat was like the Zen, Zendo, right? And then after a while, more people came, and they said, oh, we must get a place, and he got his first little Zen center, you know, and after a while, left the laundromat, and they said, oh, we have to support you, we need a real Zen teacher, and so forth. And then it grew to a hundred centers around the world, and so forth. But the spirit of it was that possibility of bringing wakefulness and care to whatever work is given to us. And that is really the centerpiece of wise livelihood, after we stop harming others. The idea isn't to have a perfect job. That's kind of an American myth, like the perfect marriage, right? <laughs> or the perfect man, or the perfect woman. Forget it, right? It's like barbie or something like that (laughs) instead it's to find the livelihood the best livelihood that you can that's all you don't always get to choose and then to do that livelihood as if it were your temple and when we were in the monastery we swept the paths we cleaned the toilets we cleaned the huts we built New huts, we went to meetings with the monks. I mean, it wasn't so different. You have to live a life. We had to wash the dishes and bowls and so forth after the meals. So the idea isn't that you're going to find the perfect, always interesting, wonderful job. Have you noticed, those of you who meditate regularly, how boring meditation can be? I mean, let's face it. It's really not... All that interesting sometimes. Breath comes in and the breath goes out. There's another one of those same damn thoughts. The same <laughs> ones coming again, you know. And then you complain, "Well, my work is boring. The monastery is boring. It's supposed to be actually. The idea isn't to make it. Oh, now it's Disneyland. Every day something new, and you know, you take a new ticket. But rather to refine our attention so that every day becomes interesting in its own right." And every person we meet becomes interesting in their right, not because of some idea we have, but because the immediate present moment is actually alive. It becomes the place of our practice. And it's the perfect place to learn patience, your work, to learn compassion, to learn truthfulness, to learn steadiness of heart, all of what are called the perfections of a Buddha. It is your temple, wherever it happens to be that you work. To make it one's practice. How to do it? Practice there. Try loving-kindness meditation, those of you who do it. Try it with the people that you meet. Try it in your meetings before you start to talk. Just sit and do a little meta inside. I don't mean be weird about it. You don't have to let anybody know. But inside, a kind of blessing for each person or the people who come in the door. But what if it's difficult? What if they're difficult people? I remember when Ajahn Jumni the Thai force teacher that comes every year was here, and the staff really wanted to meet with him because they were overwhelmed, especially in the front office. So we get six, seven, eight hundred phone calls a day. What should we do? And there's so many different demands, and it's too much. How do we practice with the telephone? He said, well, when the phone rings first, you let it ring three times. Buddha Dharma Sangha, you take a couple of breaths. Center yourself with each okay now you're centered then you pick the phone up you say hello then someone speaks said you take it a little away from your ear and you try to listen what is the energy coming out of that phone is it need is it demand is it angry is it love is it fear you'll hear it right away so oh you bow to that oh this is fear this is need this is anger all these kind of energies Another breath, then you're ready and you bring mindfulness and compassion to that fear or that love or that need or that whatever it is that's coming out. Good practice. They said, Yeah, but what if you're really overwhelmed? He said, simple. He said you have hold button, right? Say, Excuse me. Put them on hold. More breathing. Right? And back again. From Thich Nhat Hanh, he talks about the two ways to do the dishes, remember? You can either do the dishes to get them done, or you can do the dishes in order to do the dishes. I remember working uh, on an assembly line at a factory for a while, and it was actually, it was a lot like the monastery. I mean, it was the same rote thing, and if, if only those people could pay attention in the right way, I mean, they just needed a monk in there to give them little instructions. Um, it would have been really enlightening. The idea isn't that it's supposed to be a certain way, because that's not how life is given to us. It isn't. But to take what's given to us of necessity and of our connection with the community and work with it as our temple. So, important principle. Where is that first principle I wrote down here? Second, oh yeah, living in the present, that's right. Right Livelihood. (laughs) Forgot it, I was so much in the present, I couldn't find that. Second, Right Livelihood. Using it, really, using it as a means of awakening. The second part is that Right Livelihood, or Wise Livelihood, speaks of giving back to the world. As human beings, each of us has a deep longing to give to the world. Our creativity, our labor, Our gifts, to be of service, to have a skill, as the Buddha says, to to have uh, work, it's a great blessing. And it used to be in the village cultures, again the places that I've lived in Asia or Latin America or other such places in African villages and so forth, everybody was needed to do something. And it's so important to be needed by your community there is a very great sorrow that comes for those who are unable to work and unable to give, un- unable to care for themselves and others, are unemployed. And unemployment is not just about money and jobs. Um, when there's job flight out of a community or um, all the circumstances that we know that mean that young men or young women born in certain places don't have opportunity to work because of injustice or the inequality of society or the lack of opportunity or the racism or the bad schooling and all those things that contribute we know about. The tragedy is that there are these people whose spirits want to give and don't have a way to do it. And this is because, unlike Freud, and Hobbes and the others whom I read, there is some deep place in our being, our Buddha nature, that knows our interdependence. And that there's a dignity that we would love to express, the love of work well done. And that knows that our self-interest is the same as the interest of our community, if we could give of ourselves and be given back to, in that respectful way. We breathe, we eat, we drink, we drive. There's an ecology that we are constantly a part of in nature and in the human community. And our happiness does not come from what we get. Our happiness comes from what we give. Tom Smerton. says as a writer, if you write for God you will reach many men and women and bring them joy. If you write for men and women you may make some money and you may give someone a little joy and you make a little noise in the world for a while. And if you write for your own self-promotion you can read what you yourself have written and after ten minutes you'll be so disgusted you'll wish that you were dead. the happiness comes not from what we get, but from what we give. And this means in the end that rife livelihood is not about the perfect job and that kind of myth, but the perfection and the freedom of our inner spirit. And taking responsibility to be here as a human being and to choose as best we can what's available to us and make it our temple. The Spanish proverb, Choose what you will and pay for it. One Cherokee chief puts it this way, I tell our young people that the way to get honor is to go to work and give their hearts to the work that they do. This is the way to get honor in this world in these days. Or from a Hasidic master, Someone went up and said, Can you tell me about your master? What was the most important thing about your master? The most important thing to your master? And the disciple said, The most important thing to my master was whatever he happened to be doing at that moment. To make one's work one's temple. And if we do, it becomes contagious. The quality of attention and care and love and dignity it spreads on we catch it from one another it says in Zen that there are only two things you sit and you sweep the garden and it doesn't matter how big the garden is so you center yourself in meditation make a place of stillness and compassion let your heart open to the connectedness with all things and then you get up from your seat And you move into the world and express that understanding in this great temple. So I like, of course, to talk about the toll takers on the Golden Gate Bridge. Because periodically and regularly I run into very wonderful people there who are welcoming you to the city of St. Francis with such generosity. And they really look at you. I mean, all these people coming in. There's a kind of fantastic welcoming that's there and it comes not so much from what we do again but the spirit with which we do it. Somebody the other Monday night came and gave me this picture of these two little tiny premature infants in a in a uh, what do you call those things where they keep incubator Um, and it's part of an article called the rescue hug apparently there was um, twins fraternal twins, a boy and a girl that were born, um, quite little, and uh, one wasn't expected to live. Um, She was small, and uh, the heart rate and the heat weren't regulated and so forth, and one of the nurses in the hospital fought against separating the babies and put them together in the incubator, and immediately they snuggled up against one another and hugged each other, and within hours of doing that, The smaller baby's heart rate stabilized and her temperature rose to normal and she made it just fine. That's how contagious it is. Each time we answer the phone or meet a client or a customer or cook a meal or deliver the meal to the table as the waiter or write something that we have to write you know or pound in a nail or whatever happens to be we can if we pay attention make that our meditation and if we do we will find in it a certain joy and beauty because the beauty comes when we pay attention and when we love what we do it's really basic to bring our awakening back to the world. In the Bible it says, but that the Lord build your house, you build it in vain. So that in the end, right livelihood means being where we are, not harming others, tending to it as a temple, as a place of awakening. And even more deeply, it becomes an expression of our enlightenment. It is an expression, a ritual of our tenderness. (coughs) Because we are awakened, and we are, we know this in ourselves. What we do shifts from that small sense of self, the body of fear that we talk about, that Freudian, Hobbesian identity, to that great heart of a Buddha, where we act with our whole body and heart and mind in concert. And through it, we nurture and celebrate and honor and ennoble and revere and love, all of those things. And it's not done in some grand way, it's done in the simplest fashion. So, Meher Baba puts it this way he says, let's see if I can find it. The scope of true service is not limited to heroic acts great gestures, huge donations to public institutions. They also serve who express their love in little things. A word that gives courage to a broken heart, a smile that brings hope in the midst of gloom, is as much service as heroic sacrifice. A glance that wipes out bitterness from the heart is also service, although there may be no thought of service in it. When taken by themselves, all these things seem to be small. But life is made up of many small things, and if these small things were ignored, life would be unbeautiful and unbearable." Joseph Campbell, people say that what we're all seeking is a meaning for life. I think that what we're really seeking is an experience of being alive, so that our life On the physical plane of this earth, will have resonance within our innermost being so that we can actually feel the rapture of being human. The Buddha said in a number of different places, this very wonderful passage, he said, if enlightenment, awakening, liberation of the heart, compassion, if these things were not possible... I would not teach them. But since enlightenment is possible, the awakening of the heart is possible, compassion is possible, I teach it. And this teaching or this Dharma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. Let's sit for a moment. And as you sit quietly, ask for a little bit of reflection. How might you make the livelihood work of your own life more of a temple? How might you bring the quality of sacred presence to that which you do as livelihood? minutes before we do a chant to end this evening so I'd like to ask you a question um, as you did that reflection or maybe as you remember those things that have helped to make the livelihood you do be a place of awakening what have you done what have you learned what works for you I'm looking for hints from the collective understanding here Few people? Yes.
1: I, um, I teach a lot, and one thing I, I got a long time ago was the unwritten first line of any Job description is to deal with all people. Hmm. that I want
2: to
1: uh, enhance mm. And <laughs> if I do, that means always follow up after the bell to get to look at them
0: as an so as a teacher You see your work, not just to teach the material, but really to tend to the spirits or hearts of those people, to follow up after the bell if there's been conflict, to be there for them as, as human beings, that relationship, and then secondarily the subject, is that correct? Yeah, thank you. I wish there were, I mean, there probably are a lot of teachers who do that. I wish there were more support for that in our educational system. I think we're testing for the wrong things in some of our state tests. Yes, please. Often, in what I do my work, I do some big ones. Often people call me when they're in a panic situation.
1: Do the best I can to calm and tell them, it will get printed, and it will happen, and I overheard a friend um, one time telling another, well uh, no, actually the, the client would become a friend telling someone else, oh don't be hysterical, call Samantha, just dump it on her, she'll take care of it. <laughs> My job is to um, calm people and
0: let them know their job is get. Yes, Yes. that's great. So you're the reassurance. Could you hear her over there? Yeah, where her work as graphic designer is not really just graphic designer, but all those people in a panic. You're also their counselor. It's all right. It will get done. You can let go. Or maybe you're their meditation teacher. Relax. We'll get it printed in time. Your life will be okay. Thank you. That's great. Someone else, please.
1: Well, I do meta for um, patients or clients uh, before they come in, and midway through a session, I will ask for help from the Mm ancestors. And how can I help this patient ease his suffering? Mm -hmm. And uh, invariably, I let go at that time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And other thing uh, is that I just I started working with kids again, and <clears throat> several times during the kids session, I would um, focus on breathing into the earth, and that calm uh, really, it, it really is contagious, and it and it did uh, have an impact on on the
0: kids. So she. First, she does loving-kindness meditation with the clients and patients that come before they even come in the door, taking some minutes to just vision them, center, and and wish the intentions of the heart. May they be well, may they be at peace, may they be safe, and so forth. And doing that when she's with them. And then partway through her time with the people, she'll stop and do a kind of prayer. May the ancestors, the Buddhas, the, the spirits that... Um, Have been here long before me. May you give me guidance. May you support me um, in knowing how to be of use to them and to relieve their sorrows. And um, things come. She lets go, and good things come. She finds that also working with children. Thank you. Just maybe one more, please.
1: I try to under
0: promise and over deliver. Mm. I try to under-promise and over-deliver, and that way everyone is delighted. <sighs> there's a little Zen story where someone was working on the, you know, building the Zen center, and the Zen master came out to say, how is it going? And the student said, well, it's it's coming along fine. It's almost all finished up. All that there's left is just a few details. And the Zen master looked really perplexed and he said, but details are all there are. (laughs) All right, a little chant for the evening. And the chant is simply the single sound, ah, which is a seed syllable in Sanskrit of the first sound, the last sound, um, and more fundamentally the sound of opening or letting go. So we'll just sing ah for a little bit You can feel it in your bodies what it's time to let go of because coming here it's not so much you come to get something this is really the place to let go of stuff as best you can (coughs) sitting letting go so that you can be open and keep that beginner's mind when you go back ah